0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. That's Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians in your New Testament. And, uh, you know, God's given you a table of contents. If you need to use it, don't be shy. Also, uh, if you use the Bible on your phone, we encourage you to do that. There's a great app called YouVersion Bible app, and there's, there's others as well. But we encourage you, however you've got the Bible with you today, Please read along. Our text comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. On Sunday mornings, we're studying through the letters of First and Second Thessalonians. So it's kind of like golf. We just pick up where the ball fell last week. And so that's what we're doing today, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would give us insight into it, Lord, that we might understand, that we might apply these things to our lives, and Lord, that we might become the people you desire to make us into. So Lord, give us receptive hearts and responsive hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this text it comes from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is an interesting city because it's one of the uh, only, you know, continually. inhabited inhabited cities from ancient times from antiquity it's still a major city in Greece today but the ancient part of the city is a little bit outside of the city center today and there've been a lot of archaeological digs and so in uh, one of the archaeological digs several years ago uh, they uncovered the remains of a pagan cemetery in this city that we're reading this letter written to in Thessalonica And what they found as they uncovered this cemetery, they found several tombstones, which were all inscribed with the same inscription in Greek. And the inscription said in Greek, no hope, no hope. That is how people in this city thought when it came to death, that there is no hope beyond the grave. There might be hope in this life, but really at the end of the day, Death has the final word. There's nothing to hope in beyond the grave. And it really doesn't take a genius or a lot of thinking to realize that if there's no hope beyond the grave, well, then there's actually no hope for this life either. Because really think about it, what is the point after all if we just live meaningless lives, working in order to eke out a a meager existence, right? Just trying to put food in our mouths only just to one day get old, fall apart, and die. If there is no hope beyond death, then there is no meaning in life. And as the Greeks of that time said, they're absolutely right, there is no hope. When they summarized what life all comes down to in the end, when you look back on all of it, that was what they said. It's all summarized in these two words, no hope. And it is to this setting that Paul the Apostle writes this letter to the Christians who lived in this city, he says these words. What does he say there in the first verse that we read? I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as those who have what? No hope. See, what Paul is telling them is that as Christians, we now have a completely different way of thinking about life and death and everything in between, right? Everything that's encompassed in that because of what Jesus did, but not only what he did, but what he will do. See, to be a Christian is to be what I like to call an optimist fit. Right, an optimist fit. That's somebody who doesn't fit in. They stand out from the crowd. Why? Because they have a hope that is different than the world around them. Because of Jesus, we have a hope in life and in death that gives us a completely different outlook On everything. We have completely different expectations about what this life is going to bring. You see, as Christians, we believe that no matter what is happening in our lives currently, the best is yet to come. No matter if it's really good right now or no matter if it's really hard right now, we believe that the best is yet to come. See, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this letter, he was himself an optimist fit, somebody who didn't fit in. He stuck out. See, the thing about Paul is that he suffered greatly. He, he lived with chronic pain, for example. Maybe some of you can relate to that. He faced, aside from that, he faced calamity and mistreatment. And yet his life somehow was characterized by joy and by a sense of optimism when it came to thinking about the future. Now, the Thessalonian Christians, they were facing some major hardships and difficulties. They were being persecuted because of their faith. See, when they put their faith in Jesus, their lives did not get easier. Quite the opposite. Their lives got much harder almost immediately. Many of them were attacked. They were persecuted. They were beaten up. They lost their jobs. And on top of that, what we read in this section is that as all these things were happening, kind of the cherry on top was that their friends began to die. People in their congregation, their loved ones, their family members began to die. And in a situation like that, you wonder, how do you stay afloat? How do you keep from drowning under that uh, those waves of grief, those waves of sorrow and hardship? Many of you, maybe you've experienced that in your own lives. And maybe some of you are going through something like that right now. You know, I was in my garage this weekend and I, I found something. I'm going to So this is a life jacket. It's kind of small on me, so I'm not going to try and put it on. But so I was in my garage and kind of cleaning things up, and I found this life jacket, and I was just thinking about this thing, because if you think about it, what is this, right? This is like a couple dollars worth of foam, uh, some clips, some plastic clips. I mean, really cheap, right? And like some thin nylon material. There's really not a lot to this. It's quite a simple thing. It's quite a, you know, very basic device, however... This can be the difference between life and death when it comes to drowning in the open sea. You know, sometimes when we face grief in our lives, it can feel like we've been tossed out of a helicopter into the open sea, right? And we're just getting beat by waves and we're trying to stay afloat and it's just sucking us under. And you wonder how can you survive grief and hardship and sorrow and stay on top? Well, it's kind of like what we need is a life preserver for our souls. You see, two people can be thrown into the same ocean, right, into the same open sea. But just having that equipment, right, being equipped with the right thing can be a matter of life and death, can be a matter of surviving and drowning, And in the same way, there are some simple truths and some simple promises, which if you are equipped with them, they will act like a life jacket for your soul. And they will enable you, even in the midst of hardship and grief, not to be dragged under and destroyed, but to rise up and have hope. You know, I'm not talking about, by the way, I want to make sure that you understand, I'm not talking about being optimistic just for the sake of being optimistic. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about just kind of telling yourself that everything's going to be okay. See, for many people, what I've experienced, when we talk about optimism, it's kind of like cotton candy, right? It's sweet and sugary, but it doesn't have a lot of substance. There's nothing you can really grasp onto. There's no substance to it. I was thinking about a time in my life which was very difficult, my my daughter, my, my middle child, she. Was in a coma. And so I I reached out to a friend uh, looking for encouragement and hope in this time. And what he told me was, he said, Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Now I realized that my friend was trying to be helpful, but what he said didn't help me at all. In fact, it frustrated me and it made me upset. You know why? Because he was trying to give me hope, but there was no basis for that hope, there was no substance to that hope. Why should I not worry? Give me something to hold on to. How do you know that everything's going to be fine? What if it's not, right? I didn't want empty platitudes in that moment. What I wanted was something of substance that I could grab onto, that I could hold to. What I needed was a life jacket that could hold me up through the rough storms of life. And the truth is that in Jesus, and I'll say this, only in Jesus, can we find that kind of hope, the kind of hope that can turn us really into optimist And so here in this section, I've got three points for you. Three big things that Paul tells us that are the secret to being this kind of person, an optimist fit. Here's the first, knowledge changes everything. So that's the first, knowledge changes everything. Secondly, death is only temporary. And thirdly, some restrictions may apply. Some restrictions may apply. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's talk about this first one. Knowledge changes everything. He begins in verse 13 by saying this, brothers, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant about those who have fallen asleep so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. See, here's the thing. What you know changes how you think and how you feel. What you know changes how you think and how you feel. You know, it's really interesting when you consider that one of the most uh, popular viewpoints these days when it comes to spirituality and God and things regarding what happens to a person when they die is called agnosticism. So if you look at statistics, you know, what you find is that there are actually very few true atheists out there, very few actually. Most people, and and really an increasing number of people, identify as agnostics. And what, what that means is that if you ask them something about God if you ask them what they believe about the afterlife or about spirituality the answer is always I don't know maybe maybe not I don't know I just don't I don't know what is God like I don't know like which God is it you know I don't know is there heaven or hell I don't know maybe And, and when it comes to different beliefs about you know life death heaven and hell whatever it is the answer is always maybe, I don't know. And again, that's a very popular position in our society today, because if you're agnostic, you never have to take a firm position on anything, and that's attractive to people, right? You can always just say, I don't know. Now, the word agnostic comes from Greek, and it literally means in Greek, without knowledge. That's all it means, without knowledge. And Here's the thing that's interesting. If you read this verse in Greek, the language it was originally written in, Paul literally says here in verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be agnostic when it comes to this issue. I don't want you to be agnostic when it comes to this issue. Which issue? The issue of what happens to a person when they die. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be agnostic when it comes to this. Why? Well, two things. Number one, being being unclear, right? Not being clear can lead to unwarranted fear. So not being clear can lead to unwarranted fear. That was what was happening here in Thessalonica. But on the other hand, I would also say that not being clear can also lead to unwarranted confidence. Have you ever met somebody who had a lot of confidence? that they really shouldn't have had, right? Like I've met these people, they've got all the confidence in the world, but it is unwarranted confidence. They should not have that confidence. In fact, their confidence is dangerous to them because it's gonna lead them to do something that they have no business doing. So when uh, my daughter, the same daughter I was mentioning earlier, when she was little, like around two, she had this toy airplane, right? It's kind of like it had wheels on it and these wings that came out, and she would ride it around our house. And where we lived, like our main living area was up this steep flight of stairs, and then you had to go downstairs to get into the kitchen. So, um, you know, we had like this long hallway that led into the staircase that was very steep and definitely not up to code, right? And so uh, when my daughter was little, she, she was convinced that this airplane was going to fly, and she would always tell us, I fly, you know, I fly, and she would like uh, really, she was really confident, and she had this thing in her mind i'm not sure where she got it that if she could just get a running start at this staircase that she would just safely you know glide down to the bottom now again she was without knowledge right like she was without knowledge of stuff like science and physics and gravity and um aerodynamics and her lack of knowledge was a liability right because it was leading her to have unwarranted confidence which was potentially disastrous and so as her parents, what did we have to do? We had to constantly monitor. And several times we actually caught her like getting ready to make her approach to fly off the stairs. See, when it comes to matters of eternity, uh, un, you know, lack of knowledge can either lead to unwarranted fear, but it can also lead to unwarranted confidence, which is perhaps even more dangerous. See, when it comes to matters of eternity and what will happen to a person when they die, it's pretty important. And Paul says, you cannot afford to be uninformed when it comes to this topic, So the Christians in Thessalonica, they were confused and their confusion was causing them some consternation and some worry. And uh, specifically, what they were confused about was some things that Paul had taught them regarding the return of Jesus, the return of Jesus. See, Paul had only been with the Thessalonians for three to four weeks. We know that. And then he, he ended up having to flee town because people were trying to kill him. And so he only had three to four weeks to teach these guys everything he could about Jesus, everything they needed to know about Jesus in the Bible. And so during the short time that Paul was there with the Thessalonians, he taught them about jesus he taught them that jesus was god come to us that jesus had come into the world he had lived a sinless life he had died a sacrificial death to atone for our sins and then he had resurrected from the dead on the third day he had ascended into heaven and he told them the next step which was this that one day he was going to come again for them he was going to return Now, why did Paul, if he had such a short time with them, why did he bother going into this stuff about the return of Jesus? I mean, isn't that kind of just fringe, obscure stuff? Well, not really, if you consider the fact that this is one of the main things that Jesus taught his own disciples, right? Whenever Jesus talked about, hey, guys, here's what I've come to do, here's what's going to happen, he talked about how he was going to go away and then return. For example, in John chapter 14, at the Last Supper, right, the Last Supper is a pretty big deal. So Jesus is at the Last Supper. We read this in the the beginning of John chapter 14. Jesus tells his disciples, guys, I am going away, but it is to your advantage if I go away, because if I go away, I will prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And then he said this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return. So here's Jesus saying that he's going to go away, and then he says, I will come again. This is called the second coming. Now, continuing in that same verse, so John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus speaking, here's what he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and then I will take you, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also." So Jesus was constantly telling his disciples about his death, about his resurrection, that he was going away for a time during which time he would give them a mission and the Holy Spirit to empower them to carry out that mission. And then he said, after that, at some point, I'm going to return. Now, Jesus didn't tell them when that would happen. He said, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. I'm not going to send you any like text message notifications. I'm not going to send you like a save the date in the mail or anything. I'm just going to show up one day. So be prepared. I'm not going to tell you when it is. Be prepared. It could happen at any time, and I'm not going to tell you when it is. Now, in the Bible, the second coming of Jesus, this is sometimes called the day of the Lord. This is one of the major themes that runs throughout the entire Bible, right? To give you some perspective, it is mentioned 1,845 times in the Bible. Now, maybe you're like, well, I don't know what that means because the Bible seems like a pretty big book. Let me give you some some scope on that. That is eight times as many times as the first coming of Jesus is foretold, right? So eight times more, the second coming is talked about and foretold. It's a major theme in the Bible. It's really at the center of our hope as Christians, right? Our hope is that one day Jesus is going to return, the Lord is going to come, and he will make all things right. And so when Paul told the Thessalonians about Jesus he couldn't leave this out, right? He, he didn't just tell them what Jesus had done in his first coming. He also had to tell them what Jesus was going to do in his second coming and that it was coming very soon. So why were the Thessalonians confused? What are they upset about and worried about? Well, the main issue is basically this. You could summarize it in this way. That what the Thessalonians didn't understand is the difference between imminent and immediate, imminent and immediate imminent means it could happen at any moment immediate means it is going to happen in the very next moment right so what they understood they thought jesus was coming back immediately what jesus had said is that he's coming back imminently so jesus you know he said it could happen at any time but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen right away It could be now, it could be later. Now, this led to some problems for the Thessalonians. We're gonna see that not only in this letter, but also in 2 Thessalonians as we continue into that when we're done with 1 Thessalonians. But one of the things we're gonna see, especially in 2 Thessalonians, is that they were really excited when they heard that Jesus was coming back. And they were like, if Jesus is coming back, Well, then we might as well quit our jobs and max out our credit cards because Jesus is coming back probably like next week, maybe on Tuesday, right? Like it could happen any day, maybe tomorrow. Let's just go max out the credit cards. We'll quit our jobs. We're not going to work like a bunch of losers. Jesus is coming back. Right? And so we'll just eat the food that we have, and by the time we're done with that, I mean, he should be here. And uh, that didn't happen, right? And so that caused some problems. Now, in a way, I find it kind of hard to criticize the Thessalonians. It's, we, in a way, I kind of admire them. You know why? Because what they were doing was simply completely in line with what jesus had said they were simply believing what jesus had said maybe believing it a little too much right they're like jesus said i'm coming back and it could happen anytime and they believed it and they were excited they were stoked about it and they lived in full expectation that it could happen not just in their lifetime but it could happen any day every single day they expected it might happen but then of course a few days because it wasn't immediate it was imminent right the difference there a few days went by, and uh, a few weeks then went by. Then a few months went by, and then a year, and Jesus still hadn't returned. And so some of them started to get a little bit jaded, right? Like they're, they're like, hey, what was all this stuff you said about Jesus coming back? Like he's not here yet, you know, and is this really like a thing? Is this really going to happen, or, or did we misunderstand? And, and then the other thing that happened was, as time went by, some of the believers started to die, and that really shook them up, right? Like somebody had an accident at work, and they die. Somebody else was getting, you know, advanced in years, and they die of old age. Somebody else gets cancer, and one by one, you know, they start going to these funerals. They start going to the graveyard, and it seems what they're experiencing seems to contradict what Paul had told them about God's plan for their lives and the return of Jesus, right? And so they thought Jesus was going to come back any day but now he hadn't come back people were dying and they're getting worried like does this mean that those who died before jesus returned are they somehow going to miss out on going to heaven are they going to miss out when jesus does return and paul is writing this part of the letter to say no guys let me just clear this up for you they are not going to miss out on anything in fact they're going to be at the front of the line, right? When Jesus returns, they're actually going to be coming back with him. They're going to be the first to experience the resurrection. There's no need to be worried about those believers who have died before Jesus' return. See guys, for us too, the same is true. Jesus' return is imminent, but that doesn't mean it's immediate. So it's imminent, but not necessarily immediate. It could happen at any time, or it might be a while. We don't know. In fact, Jesus purposefully made sure that we don't know. Now you might wonder, why would Jesus not want us to know? I mean, isn't a good for us to know stuff? Well, here's why. Because he knew that he wanted us to live, every Christian in every generation until he came back, he wants us to live with an expectation that it could be at any time and also a sense of urgency that the time may be short, right? Like today could be the day and there might be not much time left. And so when it comes to the mission that he's given us, there needs to be a sense of urgency. And so he didn't tell us when, he said it's imminent, but you're just gonna have to be ready all the time. And the fact is this guys, with every passing day, we are that much closer To the day when he will return. So we're closer than we've ever been. I guess we could put it that way. The the first big key to being an optimist fit is this. Knowledge changes everything. We cannot afford to be agnostic when it comes to matters of life and death and our souls and eternity. So what is it that we need to know if, if knowledge is so important? Well, that brings us to our second point. The second big key to being an optimist fit is this. Death is only temporary death is only temporary. See, one of the things that makes death so difficult, for those of you who've experienced it, is that it feels so final, doesn't it? It feels so final when they close the lid on that casket, when they lower that body into the ground, when they cover it with dirt again. It feels so final. It feels like a lid has been closed on all of your hopes and all of your dreams for that person, on any future possibility of ever seeing them again ever embracing them again it feels so final that it's gone forever and it's done the lid is closed it's been covered up and buried in the ground in fact we have a term that we use for someone's grave their casket we call it their final resting place but guys that phrase final resting place it has a note of finality which from a from a christian perspective is not true See, that's why Paul says this phrase. He actually says it three times in this one little section, right? We covered like six verses, and he says this three times. He says it in verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15. He used this phrase those who have fallen asleep. He's actually going to use it again in chapter five those who have fallen asleep. That's the phrase he uses to describe believers who have died. So he wants us to understand that it is not final, that it's not permanent, that for a Christian, the grave does not have the final word, but rather like a seed going into the ground, it's going to rise again. It's going to be transformed in a new and better form. In fact, did you know that the word cemetery... That's a word that Christians came up with. See, in Latin, the word cemetery literally is the same word that we use for dormitory, right? You know what a dormitory is, right? It's that place where you lived when you were in college for four years or eight years if you're a doctor or lazy, right? Like it's a place where you lived. It wasn't your home. It's not your permanent place. You're just there for a time until you're done and then you move on to your real home, right? Like uh, that's what they said. These early Christians, as they were, bringing bodies to bury them in the ground of people who had fallen asleep. He said, you know what? This burial place, this is not their final resting place. This is just a place where they sleep for a little while. This is a dormitory. We're gonna call it a cemetery. See, uh, they knew that one day Jesus was going to come and those believers would be raised in power. And so Paul says in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus' resurrection set a precedent. You know what a precedent is, right? Like in a legal case, there's a precedent, right? Something that's gone before and shown how things are supposed to work. See, just as Jesus died and was buried and then God raised him from the dead, that set a precedent. In the same way, Paul is saying, God is going to do the same thing with all those who have put their faith in Jesus. He was the first fruits. He was, right, product number one. And then God is going to do the same with all those who die in faith in Jesus. And you know, you might ask, well, what about those who have died and then like their bodies decompose and turned into dust and got all scattered all over the world. Well, guys, that's not a problem for God. Do you remember that in the beginning, he created man out of the dust of the earth? It is no problem at all for him to do that again a thousand times over. And so here's the picture that Paul's painting for us of what happens when a believer dies. So if a person dies who has put their faith in Jesus, their soul immediately goes to be with God. So their soul immediately goes to be with God. Elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you're a Christian and you die today, your body goes into the ground, but your soul goes to be with God. And then when Jesus returns, Paul says in verses 14, 15, and 16, the souls of those who have died will return with him. Then he will resurrect the bodies of those who have died, and then we who are alive when he returns will be caught up with him. It's the ultimate family reunion, and it says that from that point forward, we will always be with the Lord together forever. Now where it says caught up there in verse 17. In Latin, that's the word rapio, rapio, from which we get our word rapture. And if you have ever heard Christians talk about the rapture, this is what they're talking about. This is one of the main verses that they're referring to. What they're talking about is what will happen to those believers who are alive when Jesus returns. They will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's literally what the verse says. Now you might ask me, Nick, do you believe in the rapture? My answer is, of course I do. It's right there in the text, and you better believe it too, because it's literally right there in the text, right? Like like if you believe the Bible, it says we will, those of us who are alive, will be caught up and meet him in the air, right? And And Where there's debate, though, amongst Christians is in regard to when that will happen and what this is talking about, right? Kind of a timeline type of thing. That's where the, the debates come amongst Christians. But what these verses tell us, it's a bit beyond the scope of these verses. What these verses tell us is that it's going to happen and that it's going to be imminent. In fact, the only timeline that these verses give us right here is this. When Jesus returns, he will either come with us or he will come for us. So when Jesus returns, he will either come with you or he will come for you. If he comes with you, that means that you fell asleep before Jesus' return. And like it says in verse 14, when he comes again, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And Jude, right, the book of Jude, Jude says this, that when Jesus returns, he will come with 10,000 of his saints. That's his entourage. You get to be in his traveling party. If, however, you don't die and you are alive when he returns, if he comes back in our generation, if we are the generation that does not taste death, there are only two people so far in human history who have been part of that club, right? One of them is Enoch. He's a guy we read about in Genesis chapter five. It says that Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him and he was no more. And then the other one is Elijah the prophet who was also caught up, right? The same word. He was caught up to God. And so either you will come with him or he will come for you. But here's the point. Because of Jesus' death, his resurrection, right? His death was the payment. The resurrection issued you a receipt. Death is only temporary. And the reason why Paul brings this up is because he says in verse 13, he says, I want you to know this so that you will not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't grieve when tragedy strikes. Hurting with hope still hurts, doesn't it? Jesus himself grieved and wept over the death of his friend. So we still grieve, but as we grieve, we understand who we're grieving for. We're not grieving for that believing brother or sister who has gone to be with the Lord. We're weeping for ourselves because we miss them. We enjoy doing life together with them. But we remember that because of Jesus Death is only temporary. We will once again see and embrace and be with those who have fallen asleep for a time. We will be reunited one day. And Paul concludes this section in verse 18 by saying this, therefore, encourage each other with these words. See, the key to being an optimist fit is this, understanding that death is only temporary, that the grave doesn't get the last word and that the best is yet to come. And if you know these things, you know what it does? It gives you a bulletproof soul because if this is true, and guys, it is, then there is nothing and no one that can destroy you. Your future is bright because God always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. See, I love what William Barclay said. He said this, a person can face anything as long as they have hope. A person can face anything as long as they are facing the dawn. As long as you are facing the dawn, as long as you've got hope, you can face anything. See, the coming of Jesus in the Bible is described It's described as being like the dawn. You guys know what that's like, right? When you've been up early or stayed up too late, right? You've seen the dawn. It's that time when the morning light begins to break through the darkness of night. And from that point on, it is only a matter of time before the sun rises fully and and the new day begins and the promise of the gospel is that Jesus has come and he's coming again with healing in his wings to drive out the darkness and William Barclay said this if you orient yourself towards the dawn if you face the dawn if you constantly look towards the dawn then there will be shadows but they will always they will always fall behind you Right When you look forward, you won't be seeing the shadows. They will be falling behind you. See, what happens is when you turn your back on the dawn, when you turn your back on the light, what happens? All you see is shadows. And you guys know that. Maybe that's been you sometimes. Maybe you know people like that. They look at life and all they see is shadows. All they see is the darkness. But what we need to do is, like William Barclay saying, orient yourself towards the dawn. Orient yourself towards Jesus who has come and is coming again. And you will see all the shadows fall behind you. You will see the light, that growing light. And so how do you be an optimist fit? Here's the deal. By orienting yourself towards the dawn towards the dawn keeping your focus on the hope that you have in Jesus who has come and who is coming again and that leads us to our final point which is this some restrictions may apply you guys have all gotten those uh you know notices you've seen those advertisements they say something really great and awesome but then they tell you some restrictions may apply notice what Paul says here in verse 18 encourage each other with these words now, guys, I got to tell you, whether this, whether this section is encouraging to you or not encouraging you completely depends on whether or not these promises apply to you. Remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to Christians who have lost other Christians. See, in our culture, we have these platitudes that we say to make ourselves feel good, right? When somebody dies, we say things like he or she is in a better place or he or she is no longer in pain. And of course, we say those things because we desperately want them to be true but how can we know? How can we know that that's really the case? See, what we've said today is this. If we have this hope, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the resurrection, then we can be optimists, people who are oriented toward the dawn, people who know that the best is yet to come. But my question for you is this. Do you have that hope? Are you sure? Do you know that this applies to you? What if you don't have that hope? You see, these promises aren't just for everybody in general. This letter was written to Christians about the faith that awaits us because of Jesus and what he's done for us. In order to have this hope, you have to belong to him. But there's really good news, guys. Jesus stands with hands outstretched, offering you the gift of forgiveness and new life, redemption and hope. He's done all the work, all that's left for you to do is receive it, to trust in it and embrace it, to rely on it and respond to it. It's not about what you need to do for him, it's all about what he has done for you. And when you embrace him and what he's done for you by faith, then you can live with this hope of the resurrection, of redemption and eternal life. And so I wanna encourage you today to orient yourself towards the dawn, the coming of Jesus, and live in that living hope that only comes through him. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this glorious hope that we have in you. And Lord, I pray for all of us here that we would know, that we would have the confidence that these things aren't just true in general, but they apply to us in particular because we have received by faith what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who would say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know if that's me or not. I'm not sure where I stand. Lord, I pray that today would be the day when they put down their yes affirmatively and say, yes, Jesus, I recognize what you've done for me. I, I receive that promise of what you will do for me. I orient myself towards the dawn. And Lord, I pray that as people do that, Lord, you'd receive them as your children. And uh, and Lord, for all those of us, maybe we've been walking with you for a long time. We've known you for a while. Lord, today, let today be the day when we reorient our lives back towards the dawn. When we look forward to your coming, Lord, we remember that it's imminent and we live as if it with a sense of expectancy and urgency. May we live that way in hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.